It's acknowledging what you can do, but also what you can't do, and you can't solve everything. Welcome to Brave New Girls podcast. I'm Lou Hamilton. I'm an artist, author, and founder of Brave New Girl Media. I'm here to bring you inspirational guests and support on your own Brave New Girl journey so that together we can live better, help more people, and create a more healthy planet. My guest this week is award-winning author and autism advocate, Dr. Camilla Pang. Blessed with a combination of ASD, ADHD, and PhD, she uses the power of neurodiversity and science to navigate social norms and advocates for it being a hidden treasure for human evolution on a finite planet. Her first book, Explaining Humans, won the Royal Society Insight Investment Award 2020, making her the youngest ever winner for this prestigious prize and the first person of colour. Welcome, Millie, to Brave New Girl podcast. Hi, Millie. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, cheers for having me on here. Really great to have you. We met on a permaculture course that we've been doing. And um, so, and then I was kind of very excited. I actually overheard someone talking with you and uh, I heard that you'd written a book. So I then investigated. And so now I'm thrilled that you're on. And uh, so can you, can you talk to us about, it was your first book, wasn't it? Um, Explaining Humans. Um, tell us about that. And uh, particularly in relation, we'll go more into detail a bit later on, but you know, this, this podcast, we're trying to think about people and planet. So tell us about explaining humans in relation to that. Oh, that's a big question. Um, so basically, yeah, I wrote this book, um, without realizing it, actually, uh, I wrote it from myself, all these notes. But then over time, it became something else for a few, for quite a lot of people that um, whose voices needed to be heard. So um, I um, I wrote it to help other people and for people to get an insight into what it's like, and also to love, you know, it's a love letter to science. But the more time passes, the more I realise that it's become something else, and it's become. Um, a way in which people can um, form this community like so many more books have been published not for, not just for me but for people that uh, too have ADHD and autism and um, a new diver a new divergent and what this means is that there's a community that forms that is based on an acceptance and you don't have to, con to conform your experience is your experience and I know that sounds quite basic and fundamental but when we're trying to connect people and planet it's through the common stream of difference than it is to adhere to a certain standardized form and when it comes to saving the planet if we try and put it in a standardized form then that's where we're going to go wrong um there's a lot to do with systems thinking in this also and when i wrote it it was my way of creating my own system and being able to make sense of it and I think a lot of the time when people try and understand something and after they form their language of understanding it be it writing or I don't know, or, or placement of objects, see it, what we know, interior design and some people, you, the more you try and linearize it so that it is optimized to a certain goal, but the more I live and the more I do my research, the more I realize that actually this book is only one part of a lot of parts that I plan to make and there's not one solution for all. So if you're out there writing a book to solve every world problem in every single way, it's um. <laughs> it doesn't really it doesn't really happen like that it, it forms part of many mm -hmm. things and that's why I love permaculture and studying um, ecology of things mm -hmm. because 
that's how you get to the details and that's, that's how things work. So let's rewind the clock and go back to little Millie. Um, you were diagnosed with autism at the age of seven or eight, is that right? Eight. Yeah, eight. Eight, um, yeah. And later as an adult um, with ADHD too. So let's go back to um, the eight-year-old Millie. And it really struck me, you said something to your mother about uh, wanting some kind of manual for how to be human. And, and that kind of really resonated with me and I'm sure it will resonate with lots of people. You know, how do we do this? You know, and, and that kind of, that feeling as a young child that you were already sensing that you thought in a different way. What was happening in your mind when you were thinking that? Oh uh, yeah, so uh, well, everyone seemed to make friends a lot easier. Everyone seemed to understand teachers a lot easier to be on, not not to be on time, I guess it's a bit different when you're a kid because your parents bring you to places on time. And I got scared by a lot of things that others didn't. And I was more sensitive to, you know, sounds and visual and, and, and lots of weird like phobias, not weird, but like lots of idiosyncrasies that separated me from a lot of people. And it just was completely out of rhythm with everyone's preferences. And also I was very difficult as a, as a, as a child, but that was because a lot of people didn't, really know how to how to teach me and they were expecting me to be a certain shape they expected me to be a certain format and even the different child had this particular format and I didn't really fit that so they were a bit confused and so I was like well I, I, I need a manual for me and also I need a manual for them so I'm not too sure how this is going to work but I know I can only write one thing at once so I just tried to integrate both experiences and explain both sides and I did that to the language of science and for me, that was a language I understood. That was a language that was common between me and you because it was what underpinned everything that you're doing now. And it was beyond people's consciousness. It was beyond people's control. And I quite like that unifying aspect of science is that it was very universal in different countries, different people. No matter, you know, even if you like it or not, it's still going to happen. And so because of that, I, I found a place in science. And that's one of the reasons why I'm... Um, I based my book upon it and I, from that I ended up writing a manual but it wasn't it was a manual first before I branded it as a manual do you know what I mean it was something I didn't even know was that until people told me that you used to observe the students in your schools to try and get a sense of like how they worked and how they interacted so that you could essentially I guess kind of copy that behavior so that you could fit in but it was when you found science and how science works that you started to go, oh, actually, there's a relationship between what I'm seeing and understanding in science to how these people are kind of interacting. So can you explain a bit further about what that actually was? It helped me look at things from more of an objective lens where I was separate from it because I felt separate from it anyway. But it was a, it was the voice that said, okay, this is what's happening. Okay, that's interesting. Let's observe this. Why am I hurt? Okay, then. Well, do they know I'm hurt? Does it matter that they know that I'm hurt? What, do, you know, this seems a bit like this that I read. And it was literally just the scientist facade was something that I had later then embodied, um, which I've then realised 
um, <laughs> it's completely different to what I imagined it would be. <laughs> that's, an, that's book three. Um, but yeah, when I changed my behaviours, um, this was when I had my own back. And I think this is where I think group mentality can actually go go wrong. So I'm, I'm all about community. But when it comes to when it disables you because you feel like you can't be anything else, you need to have your own back and trust your own process so that you can help yourself and, and the planet and, and be able to contribute in the way that you can. Because what's more frustrating is knowing you can do more when you're doing less because you feel like you need to conform. But if you honour your process and what you know you have to offer, you'll actually be a lot happier and contribute more. In your book, you you just, you you go through an exercise for yourself, which I think is really helpful. And it's um, using um, the tree so you you wanted to so for example you wanted to be able to get to work um, and you would have to go on the tube and there were particular things that you found difficult so there might be smells there might be you know that you would have to sit in one particular seat and if you know either the train was late or delayed or you couldn't sit in the seat that you would normally sit in or there were people that were somehow kind of difficult to be around you would have to navigate that but you you found this method that really helped you to to navigate this way of being in the world can you explain how that works with the tree yes um so um for the tree based thinking this is just like something that i introduced when i realized that thinking constantly in categories as quite a lot of people do they silo everything and I found that quite a very fragile way to be and when people when you kind of departmentalize everything in your head when it comes into boxes which is the the, op the opposition of tree I guess you limit yourself from the word go because there's always a beginning and an end which is great in defining things because that's how things run but they don't form part of an adjacent process and I think when it comes to navigating the world and having that sense of contingency and that it's okay to have a different route like even when you code there are many different ways of doing the same thing you feel like okay it's just it, it's okay to do things a different way and and when I love I love routine to the point where at times I've been heavily dependent on having a specific like you say, a chair or a train or a position on a platform, because for me, it was a recipe. Every commute was a recipe because that was how I got through. And um, when it changed, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't really understand it. I didn't, it's, it, it's a bit like, okay, I don't stand here. So where do I stand? And a lot of people would be like, ah, oh, I, you know, I stand here, but I'll, I'll stand here instead because of X, Y, Z. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't think to think that. Um, because I'm thinking of how to get to work and there's too many moving parts. And so the tree was a way of um, me having my own back. So if I couldn't do this recipe formation, I could do this and know that it's okay. And if I do this, then this might change. Knowing how things change in consequence of the different moves that you make really reassured me because it didn't leave me in the dark. It gave me a path to doing things in a different way and I think when you're heavily dependent on routine it can it can really help so, and so yours you did that coming from having autism and and later finding that you were also you also had ADHD 
Um, but I also I think that that is also a re really good recipe for everyone, isn't it? Because, you know, we we all to one extent or another have our way of doing things and our way of believing. And this is the this is the path we follow and this is the way to do things. But the yeah. trouble is that that where we are with the planet, we are going to be making having to make different decisions and change our behaviors. And so I think that kind of the tree analogy is a quite a useful tool to work out how we can be different and act differently to make sure that, you know, we actually have some kind of um, longevity as humans. Can you, from your perspective, help us to understand how we might do that? Yeah, so when it comes to, so this is, if it comes to the systems thinking and the tree is, I guess, a subset or just a, a branch literally in, in the circularity of systems and how things are connected. I've thought about this yesterday and how, for example, um, this is a very dark example, but it's a um, I call it aspartame or people call it aspartame. And this is like sugar and drinks that now is in everything, but now it's like, oh, it's it's cancerous. And everyone's like freaking out, which is, is cool, which, you know, it's, it's, that's understandable. But I was like, wait a minute, I a I like lemonade and also I can't really find many lemonades which are under five pounds that don't have aspartame in and I was like is that my problem or is it the system's problem and where do we change at what points does a the system listen and change and how in turn does that feed into people's habits changing because habits are all to do with the balance of incentive and trade-off and convenience let's just put it that way because it is we're human um, but what you know, if you've managed, you know, if you've managed to convince yourself that lemonade is the best drink for the planet and the people, then suddenly you find out this happening. It takes a system change, like you know, like wooden toothbrushes, um, and it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think when it comes to tree-based thinking, you can also apply that to um, this thing called life cycle analysis, which a lot of companies use to assess the energy expenditures of different parts of the company. And that in turn is, is like a tree because it's a cradle to grave mentality. You're not looking at one metric, you're looking at many different parts of the process so that you can know the impact of a product on, on, on the planet. You can't think of things as having one consequence because much like the branch of a tree, it doesn't work like that. And, I, and, and so inadvertently, I might be there trying to think of all the different ways I can get on a train and get to work on time. But I think essentially the tree thinking is, is going to help people be more aware of the actions of what they can do, can't do, but they want to do. Mm. And so what brought you to permaculture then? what's your what's your actual day job and then what brought you to permaculture yeah so yeah my um my day job so um i'm a scientist um i was in uh bio, well, i'm in bioinformatics biochemistry um i did um, a lot of um, cancer research um like protein structures but also looking at things on a molecular level and how proteins themselves are systems and how they feed into the cellular systems and the body systems and um this is inadvertently preparing me for bigger systems in my mind and now I I love studying them don't get me wrong and I'm going to carry on doing that I've actually um um going to be starting a job in a few weeks time um as a uh um, working in computer aided drug design 
so trying to create more um, create um, more um, I guess more better optimized drug leads um, without having to spend so much in in the lab you know it saves on energy saves on time saves on money saves on resources if we can have that data and kind of do analysis on it to sell experiments to do like five leads as opposed to 200 <laughs> so that's kind of what I do in my day job and so I, I took a I, could, I took a um, little break from a, a job I had a while ago. It was in systems biology, and it was really good, but uh, I just the company wasn't for me basically. And so I had a few months of being like, what do I actually want to do? What do I actually like? And what do I value? And a lot of it came down to systems theory. And I was like, well, this is the common denominator for all of my interests. And I kind of read about it, and I like, and then I thought, well. It's all really well and good theorizing everything, but if the planet's burning, then where do we start? And a lot of that was land use, and a lot of it was looking at, be really, really um, basic about it, plants. So I thought, well, it's not just about plants, is it? It's about land use. And I started to do more research, and I realized that it isn't plants or objects or endpoints or goals. It's actually processes that are, that are ultimately killing the planet. It isn't whether you have, you know, because I call it the Tesla effect, okay? You have like a Tesla in one country versus a Tesla in another, and both of them could have a very different carbon footprint due to the process of how electricity is generated. And I think it's like an apple in one country could be different to an apple in another country due to how it's um, cultured and, and, and produced. And I thought, wait a minute, processes, culture, food, planet, land and all of it kind of went into regenerative agriculture and I was like okay this is this is actually something this is actually a thing why aren't people doing this and I was very interested in the principles of like an idolized agricultural process that was good for people and planet and I was like well okay if we've got this amazing thing then why aren't we doing it and so and I wanted to know the limitations, I wanted to know the benefits, and I wanted to do more research into it, so that one day, even if I might not end up being the best gardener in the world, I will be able to apply the principles of regeneration to a field of science, be it in medicine, be it in regenerative agriculture, or making people see things for what they are, and how they in turn as humans have a duty to take care of nature, because they are part of the system. This is what humans, I don't really like, they don't like to admit, humans aren't this, pin, 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 I call it like a pinnacleized Tesla, we're actually part of a system that is currently breaking, and we don't want to admit that, or see that, because it makes us feel fragile, but if we acknowledge the principles and how things are grown and generated, and fed and regulated, permaculture, we realise that we, ha we actually have a place to, to help it. And what we've been learning with the permaculture is that this isn't a new, I mean, permaculture is not new, it was sort of started 40 years ago, but even before that, actually that was based on how indigenous peoples lived alongside nature. So they had a kind of intuitive understanding of this kind of systems way of, of living. And we're almost sort of going back to that and looking and thinking, oh, actually when we kind of came in and said, you're doing it all wrong and you're backward and and kind of we trash their their land and their ways of doing things actually we're having to kind of eat humble pie and go you were right we need to to learn we need to look back we need to understand how you did things with alongside what we've learned with with technology and science 
And so how do you see the future and create a way forward that allows for humanity to continue to exist? Because I, I think the world is going to be all right. The planet will be okay. It's just whether we're going to still be on it. <laughs> What's your kind of vision for the future with those two things coming together? I think there's an element of like, you could be the best scientist or science lab in the world and have the greatest knowledge. But at the end of the day, if the government and communities aren't willing to look at processes which feed into the planet or you know help the planet a lot of people think innovation is through new knowledge but i think what what is missing is that there's a lot of knowledge out there clearly through practices of communities that are that know how to be regenerative i think how it's going to meet with technology is a matter of scale scale is something that is literally the achilles heel of of technology because you want to be representative but then you want to want, but then you want to create something that is going to be quick and easy to run but honoring the processes and practices of these uh you know indigenous people and, and also permaculture i think that's going to take it's not just an awareness because it takes the system to honor mm-hmm. that awareness and i don't think like, I, I'm, not, I'm not a cynical, I'm not going to say it's not going to happen, but it's going to take a lot more than science and tools. It's going to take the system to actually um, listen to it and also communities in turn to be, I think awareness does come in, does come in handy because it enables people to develop these practices and run businesses that are, that, that, that are a different shape so that we can create this <laughs> new low carbon economy. I think it starts with with different businesses taking ownership in their role in that, because that is ultimately one thing that connects the individual and the system really. But in terms of technology, I think I think AI, as much as it can be seen as the devil, but actually it can be assisting a lot of these processes. I think there's a bit of a binary thinking between, oh, it's either the, the globe or AI, you know? And, and I'm like, well, actually, I don't, I'm not so sure it was that simple or like that, you don't wanna demonize um, AI, um, and don't get me wrong, there's, there's lots of limits to it, but I think what 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 does frustrate people is that, you know, they listen to AI more than they do the planet, so you have a lot more funding to AI than, than climate change, which is completely true. <laughs> but when it comes to having the, the, the priorities, the emotional and social priorities, I think this is where awareness does come in. And things like permaculture, such as these courses, um, it's it's not happening fast enough. And this is why I'm like, I want to learn so that maybe one day I can open my business and maybe in turn perpetuate this message so that people can do the same. And then maybe it's a mass effect. It should be an effect as quick as a pandemic. I mean, the government responded so very fast to that crisis. It's almost reassuring, but also frightening because it's like, well, you can respond, but you're not choosing to. And the only thing the government really listened to, let's be honest, is money and what makes them look good and what makes them feel stable in themselves. And it goes against a lot of the ecology of what saves the planet. And the more they listen to new business and preparing for a low carbon economy, the more chance we have. And so it feels like it needs to be a bottom up, top down, middle out, everybody all pulling together. Yeah, but I don't think it's a recipe. I don't think it's going to be a recipe like, okay, we need to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C. But this is the thing. It takes people to listen and the system to respond. Um, like, are we, and am, am I going to, you know, the same question of my lemonade, am I going to have a, 
uh, you know, how fast a company is going to respond to the needs of science and what we know to be beneficial to humans versus the planet. And in turn, it takes businesses and the government to implement these new technologies, be it, you know, and, you know, non-cancerous lemonade or or um, green ways of living. Um, so it and also it's not just the marketing thing as well. It's like, uh, is it going to be cheaper than my toothbrush? Is it going to be, you know, it's, it's, it's a very essentialist views, view of saying something that's going to take more than an electric toothbrush that is eco-friendly. It's going to take a reshift in priorities um, and lifestyle of pretty much everyone on the planet. But that in turn can be helped by awareness of indigenous communities and being able to see how we can apply those to modern day life. And so with that in mind, how do you define courage? Yeah, so this is a this is such a great question. I think courage is, is is something that a lot of people know what they they think they know what courage is. We often assume it as us being our best selves and kind of reaching for the stars and following your dreams, even though it feels uncomfortable. It's like, well, can that's it as well? But it's also the ability to step back and take stock of what isn't working. And the ultimate courage in this isn't just standing up for it and putting yourself on the line to get arrested when you're doing a just oil to stop oil protest. It's actually honouring this fear that we all feel. There's an it's a massive eco anxiety that is um, that is perpetuating society, and there's a lot of books on it. But you can read all you like, and I'm a big reader. But a part of me is like, well. I know I can't do much. It's knowing what you can, it's acknowledging what you can do, but also what you can't do. And you can't solve everything, but you can have a look at the people that are making a difference and knowing that maybe what my little tiny contribution is okay for now. And if I have the endeavor to do do more, that's, that's okay. I think listening is also a form of courage because a lot of people have a lot to say and they listen, and they listen just to know when they can talk. But when it comes to courage, you need to stop what you're saying and hear a lot of what needs to be heard, basically. Thank you so much, Millie, for explaining human behaviour so that we start to do what we need to do in order to get back in line with nature's living systems before it's too late, so that we give the planet a chance to recover and regenerate in a way that means there's a future for humanity here on Earth. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Dr. Camilla, for showing us how it's possible to change and adapt for a better future for people and planet. You can find out more about Dr. Camilla's work on www.camillapang.com and follow her on LinkedIn at Camilla Pang. Thank you, Brave New Girl Media, for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And to you for listening. I hope today's story inspires you to step into the spotlight and show how you too are positively impacting the world. Take care, choose courage, and see you next time.